This week on the show, we covered FreeBSD QT Web Engine GPU acceleration for various browsers, the grind of FreeBSD wireless stack that's sometimes necessary, thoughts on overlooking Elomos's SysEvent ADM, when Unix learned to reboot from Warner Losh, new EXT2, 3 and 4 file system drivers on Dragonfly BSD, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 364, FreeBSD Wireless Grind, recorded for the 19th of August 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backup for truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode, everyone, uh, with temperatures, at least in the northern hemisphere, hotter than expected. I uh, hope you had a nice week so far, and we will just put some more icing on your cake to cool you down a little bit, maybe. Uh, we start off with FreeBSD QT Web Engine GPU acceleration, which sounds exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is from uh, Adrian DeGroote, who's one of the KDE QT maintainers on FreeBSD. And he says, FreeBSD has a handful of Qt web engine-based browsers, including Falcon, Otter Browser, and Qt Browser, and uh, probably others as well. All of them can run into issues on FreeBSD with GPU accelerator rendering not working correctly. Uh, So we're going to look into what some of the workarounds for that might be. Uh, He says, I should mention that I personally have not hit this issue. Maybe I don't watch enough videos, or maybe I just happen to have the right hardware that avoids this problem. There are reports, uh, reported cases of Qt web engine-based browsers displaying video badly. If I remember correctly, there was a mix-up at one point between uh, RGB and BGR, which is the color palettes. And uh, there's a link here to a bug report specifically mentions videos with the wrong colors. Depending on the browser, you may be able to use command line arguments to affect the hardware acceleration. The Qt documentation on web engine debugging mentions a number of command line arguments that can be used to modify web engine's internals. Unfortunately, web browsers also parse command line arguments, and that might not help. From a little investigation, it turns out that the browsers handle the documented command line arguments very differently. For example, in Falcon, it will accept the web engine-related command line flags that are documented. I can't tell if they are actually affecting anything, but if you pass, you know, dash dash no sandbox, it still gets me debugging messages from sandbox code. Oddly enough though, if you run falcon dash dash help, it mentions a help dash all command, uh, which doesn't seem to exist. With Qt browser, it has its own special uh, dash dash qt dash flags parameter that allows you to then pass anything that you put in there uh, on into the Qt internals. I suppose that's because it is uh, Python that's doing the argument processing first, uh, and it's handing it off to Qt. And with Otter Browser, it supposedly has a dash dash disable dash GPU, uh, or had it in the past, but now complains that that's an unknown option, but it does have a help dash all that explains more. From this collection of inconsistencies, I think the conclusion should be that the environment is a better place to do any settings that should apply to the web engine's internals. The path from command line arguments to Qt internals is too dependent on where and when processing happens, and how cleanly the overall command line arguments are passed on. I agree that uh, environment variables are meant for this type of thing, especially when you're trying to communicate basically with a library rather than the application. So the documentation mentions uh, that you can set the environment variable qt webengine underscore chromium underscore flags, 
And this looks like the best way to consistently affect the behavior of web engine inside an application because the command line processing is different in every application. After all, far fewer applications mess with the environment, uh, their own environment, before instantiating the Q application class. This means that people using FreeBSD experiencing video corruption in the web engine based browsers can add Qt web engine chromium flags equals dash dash disable dash GPU to their dot profile, and they might get back to having unaccelerated but working video. I see. Okay. Yeah, as you mentioned, the environment variables are useful for that. And that also explains why we have so many of them. Just type env or set in your uh, terminal and you can see them scroll down. At least on my system, there's like, plenty of them. But yeah, that should make those browsers uh, fly a little better. And have you ever heard of any of these three browsers that they mentioned? Falcon, Other Browser, and uh, Cute Browser? No, I've, I've not tried the smaller, lighter browsers, really. Mm. Well, it might be worth giving a shot. So, uh, trying something new. In, in general, I'm definitely for the idea of having some more browser engines out there, especially now that so much stuff is basically Chromium, uh, and then there's the Firefox engine, and that's the only options now. Mm. Having <laughs> uh, at least a third one out there, I think, is is healthy for the ecosystem. Yep. So, if you know something about a cool new browser engine or a browser built on that uh, that we should check out, uh, let us know. And we will be happy to review if it has uh, any nice uh, connotation with the BSDs. Uh, the next article that we have for you is more for the embedded folks among you, NetBSD on the NanoPi Neo 2. So, this starts off with the NanoPi Neo 2, with a link to it, of course, uh, from Friendly Arm, has been serving me well since 2018 being my test machine for OpenBSD ARM64 related things. So as NetBSD EVB ARM finally gained support for ARCH64 in NetBSD 9.0, released back in February, I decided to give it a try on this device. The board has only 512 Macs of RAM, and this is where NetBSD really shines. Things have become a lot easier since um, James C. Neal? I think it's James McNeil, or James McNeil. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, probably. That's at least the, the NetBSD nickname. Uh, now provided bootable ARM image for a variety of devices, including the NanoPi Neo 2. So when you uh, do that on the first boot, the system will resize the file system to automatically expand to the size of the SD card, uh, which is uh, a good thing to do because they don't know yet how big the SD card that you're going to put it on uh, will be. So they do that uh, on the first boot. And once the system is up and running, they can add a regular user in the wheel group. So that's your user add command there. And provide a password, of course, because users should have passwords or user accounts should have passwords and good passwords on top of that. Uh, but that's aside. From there, we do not need to serial console anymore and we can connect to the device using SSH. NetBSD has binary packages available for this architecture now and installing and configuring package in can be done in uh, setting a separate vi uh, environment variable package underscore path to the NetBSD CDN and then um, running package in update. Uh, the base system can be kept up to date using sysupgrade uh, as well with package in. It's just a package in in sysupgrade away. And then you need to set a variable in uh, user package etc sysupgrade.conf to your release directory on the CDN so that you can get the proper NetBSD release for that embedded architecture. Lastly, the device has two user-controllable LEDs which can be toggled on and off using sysctl. Uh, hours of fun ahead. 
To switch both LEDs on, you use SysCTL uh, and though it has the green power NanoPie status button or indicator and the blue status indicator can also be switched on and off. And to switch it off automatically at boot time, they also show you how to do that. It's just a SysCTL conf entry. And then at last, they provide the full uh, demask at the end of the article. Very nice. Just another device running NetBSD. So next story we have is from Adrian. Uh, over on his blog, he says, uh, I'm back into the grind of FreeBSD's wireless stack and getting 802.11ac up and going. So he says, hi, yes, it's been a while since I posted here. And yes, it's been a while since I've actively worked on the FreeBSD wireless stack. Life has been, well, life. I started <laughs> uh, the Aethros 10K port in 2015 and wasn't expecting it to take five years, but here we are. My life has changed quite a lot since 2015 and a lot of things I was doing in 2015 just stopped being fun for a while. But the stars have aligned and it's fun again, so here I am. Uh, so what he's up to right now, first up, if underscore run, uh, this is the RA link, which is now owned by MediaTek, 11 ABGN USB driver for stuff uh, they first made before MediaTek acquired them. A contributor named Ashish Gupta showed up on the FreeBSD Wi-Fi IRC channel on EFNet to start working on the 11N support for if run, and they got it to the point where the basics worked, and I took it and ran with it enough to land the 20 megahertz 11N support. It turns out I had a couple of suitable NICs to test with, and well, it just happened. So I'm super happy Anish came along and to get the 11N working on yet another network card. Uh, the to-do list left for if run, Anish is looking at the 40 megahertz wide channel support now, uh, which will offer more speed. Both uh, short and long GI support uh, would be good to have, and we need to get 11N transmission aggregation working via the firmware interface. It looks like the Linux drivers has all the bits we need and it doesn't need uh, retransmission support in 802.11, the framework. Uh, the firmware will do it all if we set up the descriptors correct. So then onto the framework itself in FreeBSD called net 802.11. So this is uh, basically the 11 AC bits, even if people think it's not there. Or sorry, it has most of the 11 AC bits, even if people don't know it. It doesn't know about the MU-MIMO stream stuff yet, but it'll be a basic 11AC access point or station if the driver and regulatory domain support it. However, as I implemented uh, more of the Aetheros 10K port, I find more and more missing bits that really need to be added to the 802, or yeah, Net802.11 framework. First is A-MPDU, and A-MSDU de-encapsulation. Uh, the hardware does the uh, de-encapsulation in the hardware, or at least in the firmware, uh, pushing up individual decrypted and de-encapsulated frames to the driver. It supports native Wi-Fi and 802.3 Ethernet encapsulation, and right now we only support the native Wi-Fi mode. Note that the 802.11 support for 802.3 is there as well. I'll try to get that going once the driver lands. I added support to handle decryption offload with the A10K uh, supplied frames where there's no extra work to do. We could get some of the traffic, however, receive throughput just was really low when I last poked at it. Uh, I also looked at the AMSDU offload support uh, where we wouldn't drop the frames with the same uh, received sequence number. However, it turns out that my Mac uh, was doing these 11 AC frames and the Neto 2 11 receive 
reordered uh, was dropping all of these frames with the same received sequence number. So TCV would just see massive packet loss and drop the throughput in a huge way. Implementing this feature requires buffering all of those MSDU frames in an MPDU subframe in the reordering queue rather than tossing them out and then reordering them as if they were a single frame. Uh, so I modified the receive reordering logic to reorder queues of mbuffs instead of uh, whole mbuffs and patch things to allow queuing multiple mbuffs as long as they are adequately stamped as being MSDUs of a single MPDU subframe. And now the receive traffic rate is where it should be over 300 megabits of TCP or UDP. 300 megabits uh, of Wi-Fi on FreeBSD would be a big jump, so mm. that's good. Oh, yes. Uh, then he's also got UAPSD support. This is something specific to the Aetheros ABGN driver because it requires a lot of driver work to get it right, but the actual negotiation support using the framework is significantly easier. If the next supports offloading it like the A10K does, then I just have to populate the right QoS fields and call into the driver to notify it about the changes. And then he's also looking at migrating more of the options to be per virtual AP state. Uh, there's a bunch of 802.11 state, which is still global rather than per VAP. And it makes sense in the old world, NICs uh, that do things in the driver or in a, uh, net 802.11 uh, side are driven by software, not by firmware. So things like the current channel and the shorter long preamble, et cetera, are global state. However, the later NICs that offload various things into firmware can now begin to do interesting things like background channel uh, switching for scan, background channel switching between station and peer-to-peer -peer mode, uh, et cetera. So a lot of state should be kept on a per VAP basis rather than globally. So the right flags are given to the right uh, VAP. So I've started migrating the state into these per VAP fields uh, rather than a global state. Uh, so he says, say you're on a two gigahertz channel and you need to determine whether uh, you care about 11N, 11G, or 11B clients. If you're only seeing and servicing 11N clients, then you should be using the short slot time, short preamble, and not uh, requiring any RTS, CTS protection. So since you don't have to interoperate with older clients. Uh, and he goes on with more details uh, and saying the next big thing he wants to do is add the 802.11 AC channels into the regulatory domain XML file so that you can use the right ones in the right countries. Add the MU MIMO group notification support, block traffic from being transmitted during a node creation or key update event so that it doesn't go out sideways. Uh, clean up any of the Linuxy bits. And so he says to wrap it up, uh, between job changes, relationship changes, having kids, getting a green card, buying a house, paying off old debts, you know, and all this can really throw a spanner into your life. On the plus side, hacking on FreeBSD and Wi-Fi supports are fun again, and I'm actually able to sleep through the night once more. So here goes. If you're interested in helping out, he's also assembled a Wi-Fi to-do list on the FreeBSD wiki for people that are interested in getting involved. Mm -hmm. And he also got a couple of good encouraging comments down below. And definitely check out the to-do stuff wiki page. Maybe you can help out, maybe testing. And yeah, we hope that uh, Wi-Fi on FreeBSD will improve through this. All right, time for our news roundup this week. We have some interesting thoughts from Chris Seibelman on us overlooking Elomos' sys event ADM. 
bit of a tongue twister. Yeah, I, I really wanted to cover this one because, uh, you know, it gets into this idea that, you know, even if you have the greatest features, if you don't expose them in the right way, then users won't know that they're there to take advantage of them. Uh, and then when some other system uh, creates something that's maybe not even as good, but everybody's all excited about it. You're like, but we've had that this whole time. It's like, well, you didn't. That sounds familiar. Any. So anyway, uh, Chris goes on. Uh, in a comment uh, on a previous post where he was praising the, uh, I think it's called Zed, the ZFS on Linux ZFS event daemon, Joshua Lulo, uh, who's uh, an Illumos developer, who's often on the open ZFS uh, leadership calls, noted that Illumos, and therefore OmniOS and so on, have an equivalent in the SysEventADM tool, which dates back to Solaris. I hadn't previously known about SysEventADM, despite having run Solaris file servers and then uh, OmniOS file servers for the better part of a decade, and that uh, gives me some tangled feeling. I definitely wish I had known about SysEventADM while we were still using Lumos, or sorry, uh, OmniOS, or even when we were using Solaris before that, because it would probably have simplified our life. Specifically, it probably would have simplified the life of our spare handling system. And they have some links there if you want to know about how they manually manage spares with a cron job. Uh, at the least, running immediately when some sort of pool's uh, state change happen would have sped up its reaction to device failing instead of running every 15 minutes from a cron. On the whole, it's probably good to be forced to make our spare system be state-based rather than event-based. State-based systems are easier to make robust in the face of various sorts of issues, like dropped events. There's a, a storm of events and the event management can't keep up, you might miss the event that would have triggered something. But if every 15 minutes you're checking, you know, are any of the devices not working and then triggering the spare, that's possibly uh, or likely more reliable, but is slower, right? We covered that. Anyway, he continues, at the same time uh, that we didn't realize this event ADM existed, in my mind, a sign of problems in how Illumos is organized and documented, which is something it largely inherited from Solaris. For instance, the SysEvent ADM tool is not cross-referenced in any of the fault management related man pages, where that's FMD, the fault management daemon, FMDump, FMADM, and so on. The fault management system is an obvious entry point for a sysadmin exploring the areas on Illumos, partly because it dumps out messages on you. <laughs> Uh, on some sort of cross-reference would have led me to the SysEventADM man page, but nor does it come up much in discussions on the internet, although if I'd asked specifically back in the day, I might have had someone mention it to me. And then, you know, now that he knows what it's called, he finds some server fault questions about it and so on. But he says, a related issue is that in order to understand that you, uh, what you can do with SysEventADM, you have to read the Illumos header files. This isn't even mentioned in the sysEventADM man page, and the examples in the man page are all for custom events generated by some kind of hypothetical third-party vendor called MyCo uh, instead of an actual system event. Without a lot of context, there are not many clues what or that ZFS events are going to show up in sysEventADM uh, in the first place uh, for you to then write handlers for them. It also seems clear that writing handlers is going to involve a lot of exploration or reading the source to determine what data you're actually going to get along with an event and how it's going to be passed to you and what you can do with it. Uh, in general, and speaking as a sysadmin, the documentation for sysevent uh, ADM doesn't present itself as something that's for end users to use. 
if you have to read kernel headers to understand even part of what you can do, then it's definitely aimed at systems programmers, mm -hmm. not sysadmins. On the whole, it's not terribly, or I'm not terribly surprised that we and apparently other people missed the existence and usefulness of sysevent ADM, even if clearly there is some knowledge of it in the Illumos community. That we did miss it while ZFS on Linux uh, equivalent practically shoved itself in our face is an example of the practical field usability in action. At this point, interesting parties are probably better off writing articles about how to do things with sysevent ADM, especially ZFS things, and perhaps putting it in the Illumos ZFS FAQ. Changing the structure of the Illumos documentation or rewriting the main pages probably has too little chance of good return on the time invested. For the most part, the system documentation for Illumos is what it is. Hmm. Yeah, it's not just programming, it's also the advertising of your work once you're done. Yeah, it often comes down to, you know, even if you write a good man page, people have to then be able to find the man page or, you know, it's like, I know there's a command that does this, but I don't know its name. It can be hard to find it. You know, even with apropos or whatever, it mostly comes down to, do I know enough of the right keywords to be able to find the tool? Uh, or, you know, I have to know that one exists in order to bother mm. looking for it. And that's where things like the handbook can come in handy. But, you know, the handbook needs quite a bit of work. And even when stuff is there, the handbook is huge. If you're not looking at the right place, it's only so useful. And then, you know, like it says here, man pages without examples can make it more difficult. But you can have examples, but if they're not very practical, then they're maybe not as helpful either. Yep, yep. It uh, all ties in together and making it a whole system. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's good to know after the fact, but it would be really better if you know it. Hey, I have this feature. Why don't we all use it? Sysadmins and developers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, switching gears a little bit, we had a lot of good um, feedback from our interview with Warner Losh, and this uh, article here is what we mentioned back then: uh, the when Unix learned to reboot uh, blog post from Warner Losh himself, and uh, we thought we should mention it here, so we give it a little bit more prime time. Uh, when Unix learned to reboot, so recently or recently-ish. Uh, when this blog post was written, uh, Warner uh, got asked by a friend uh, of the history of Halt and when did we have to stop with the sync, sync, sync dance? That's not a repeat, that's yeah, not a stutter, it's really the sequence of three syncs. Um, when we have to do this dance before running Halt or Reboot. The two are related, so it turns out. So this sync, sync, sync thing, if you go looking around the net, you'll find some people giving advice like, when shutting down, type sync, 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 halt to be safe. There's a good reason behind this advice, which aren't immediately clear, and they're interesting to explore. Before exploring, I'd been told that the reasons for the sync dance were a driver bug in version 6 that's been fixed 45 years ago. But it turns out whoever told me that must have been mistaken because the code tells a different story. The sync program, called a sync system call, and exited, and still does. The sync system call in research editions of Unix was implemented as approximately, so this is uh, pseudocode, for each mount point, write the superblock with BW or BWrite, probably block write or binary write or something. Then for each dirty inode, write the inode with iUpdate and bflush, so flush it out to the disk. 
So it would step through the fixed list of buffers in the system. Ah, that's the buffer list, okay. Written the dirty notes out. It used be write to do this, which was synchronous. Ah, I see where this is going. Each write had to complete before the next one started. I up that will repeat the inode of the disk, update the inode, and write out again synchronously. B flush writes everything with B write, but marks the buffers as B underscore async, which means that in case it won't it won't wait. And nothing else waits either. So recommending for typing sync three times, one line at a time, was to give time for the buffers to drain. The subsequent syncs would schedule no new I.O. on a quiet system. So eventually the whole uh, uh, I.O.s will go to disk. Typing all three on one line with semicolons didn't give this time. So if you took that recommendation, it's actually quite smart. Type one line at a time, waiting for the prompt each time, would schedule a lot of I.O. on the first time. Then give the operator a harmless task to do for a few seconds that would allow the I.O. to complete before they did anything. The kernel avoided all kinds of nasty deadlocks that later systems would face when they implemented waiting for the I.O. to complete. So, ah, the little edit here or update. One bit of lore that was passed to me was the first sync returned right away, but the second one blocked. I found no evidence uh, of that in BSD or System 5 based systems. Although there is an increasing amount of protection against multiple threads being in the sync code as concurrency in Unix increased. So, question comes, why not do this in reboot? None of the versions of Research Unix had a system call to reboot. Hmm. To restart things, one killed init with sick hub, sick hang up, which would in turn kill everything else and fork a new shell in single user. There was no other way to restart the system and bad things happened if init actually died. But there was no clean reboot option, nor any way to stop the kernel cleanly, apart from the power switch. Yeah, yeah. So then there's a bit of uh, code spelunking here. And uh, of course, then you enter the 4BSD, because that's uh, our uh, working area and warn us of um, even more. So the first reference to reboot can be found in 4.0BSD in sysend.c. And there is a a little bit of binary code, is that? No, that's not binary, that's, um, I mean, uh, assembly. But it doesn't look like it. Yeah, it's, it's regular C code. Where reboot landed in the slot allocated. So there's a new command in Etsy that calls it to the syscall number, not the normal wrapper. So 55 is your reboot um, number, apparently. Uh, it wasn't in 2.8 BSD, but it's also present in a similar form in 2.9 BSD and later. With 3BSD still had the placeholder pointing at no sys, since the 2BSD evolution tracked 4BSD, uh, he doesn't call it out further. So then there's a bit of parts about AT&T Unix, where uh, in meanwhile on the AT&T side of things, System 3 didn't have anything, that's from 1980. And so um, System VR2, 1984, defined a new UADM system call, which acted like an indirect system call, and one of these, A underscore reboot, is called from FSCK, but the kernel doesn't implement it. Ah, so that's really the history and goes into details. There's a bit of parts about uh, commercial Unixes and uh, the part about Linux goes, Linux's sync call is synchronous. You get the same guarantees, guarantees, of course, uh, as you do from fsync. This behavior was introduced in 1.3.20, released in 1995. Prior to that, the same sync dance advice was useful, since early versions of Linux were more aggressively asynchronous in their handling of disk writes than other contemporary systems. While this helped it 
compete in benchmarks, it caused data integrity problems when Linux machines started to be put into production. Hmm. Which was one of the reasons motivating the change. Modern Linux systems flush out all the dirty buffers as part of the shutdown sequence and wait for the flush to complete, before proceeding to reboot, turning the system off or halting. So the conclusion here is, for years, he has been told the reasons for the three-sync dance was due to the driver bug, long since fixed, in a DEC disk driver in version 6. However, digging it uh, into it shows that there were decent reasons for doing this dance, even after Unix learned to reboot itself. Ah, see, that's why it's uh, not just good to listen to the urban legends, but also verify them whether they are still true, or actually legends at all. Okay, uh, moving on to other file systems or uh, yeah, file system related questions. Uh, Dragonfly BSD lands a new external X3, 2, and 4 file system driver. Yeah, all right. So while Dragonfly BSD has its own file system, like the original Hammer and Hammer 2 file systems, uh, for those needing to access data that's uh, already written from typical Linux file systems like ext2, 3, and 4, there's a brand new ext2 fs driver implemented uh, on Dragonfly. Dragonfly has long offered an ext2 file system driver that could also handle ext3 and 4 while hitting their git tree this week is a new version. The new version, which is ultimately replaced the existing version, is based on a port from FreeBSD. As such, this driver is BSD licensed rather than GPL licensed. But besides the more liberal license to fit in with the BSD world, this new driver has various uh, features and functionality improvements over the old version. However, there are some known bugs, uh, so for the time being, both file system drivers will coexist. For more details on this new non-GPL ext2 file system driver, you can look at this commit uh, done by Tomohiro Kusumi. Yeah, so this is, I think, based on the uh, the driver from FreeBSD that was done by, was it a Jisa? or not I don't it remember. could very well be yeah i don't know uh, on the top of my head but this would be a typical task for google summer of code that's it's very interesting because parts of it are you know just looking at the source code you can see that parts of it are, are from various times like it looks like the allocation code in it is actually based on ufs fs underscore allocate does the from 1994 oh yeah it evolved <laughs> Uh, yes, you know, I think ext is actually based on the original uh, fast mm -hmm. file system. Yeah, it's a moving target because they also did some changes uh, in that department as well. So you have to uh, implement those as well. Yeah. Years of file system. Yeah, it's like a good wine. It's ages. <laughs> as long as it doesn't get sour, <laughs> it's all good. Okay, time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have a call for testing, uh, LibreOffice 7.0 over on FreeBSD's mailing list for, is that ports? Yeah. No, FreeBSD-Office. Yep. Yes. Well, close enough. Uh, LibreOffice 7.0 branches over to release candidate and Office... Ah, the Office at FreeBSD team calls everyone interested to join us in testing that. Uh, the work-in-progress repository is available on GitHub. And... Yeah, they have a 7.00 branch there. Of course, uh, we support the ports overlay feature by adding overlays plus equals path to FreeBSD ports LibreOffice uh, to your etcmake.conf and then put their users um, do the right thing. They know what to do. They do the, the git clone, the git checkout, the 7.00 branch. And, uh, yeah, build. so the, the ports overlay stuff allows you to basically take the main ports tree and then add graft another tree into it to allow you to keep it separate. But 
have your work in progress stuff available as part of a port tree that you can do a regular Poudre run on. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they list currently known issues uh, is missing a vertical and horizontal scroll bars with GTK3 VCL, not the video, um, not the video codec uh, or the video play thing, but uh, that's the GTK part. Uh, QT5 VCL is... VLC is the video thing. VCL right, right. Uh, three little acronyms. Uh, <laughs> difficult to hold them apart. Uh, QT5 VCL is already locked uh, to use Cairo front renderer. But anything that you find during your testing is also uh, well appreciated by them because then they can fix it before it goes um, into the actual tree for other people to use. Okay. And there is more touchpad support over at Dragonfly BSD, apparently. Yep. So Dragonfly now has a WSP driver for the Wellspring touchpads uh, built into Apple laptops. Ah, excellent. So they can use more uh, gestures and multiple fingers uh, on that, I guess. Yes. Uh, so WSP creates a blocking pseudo device file dev WSP0, which presents the mouse as a sysmouse or mouse systems type device uh, for use with MouseD. It supports dynamic reconfiguration using SysCTL. It has a scale factor and a enable single tap click option as well. Ah, yes, if people don't want to use the touchpad at all, they can also disable the whole thing. But I guess people want to actually have um, the support. It's not, <laughs> it's not clear which models of Apple laptop this works for. Ah, uh, maybe that's part of the testing they want to have to see if uh, some models are different or have different touchpad. There, there was some evolution in the touchpads over the years, but the recent ones, I don't think there is any big change in those. But yeah, could be wrong. There should be people to test this. More devices, more testing. Hey, I have a backup story for you, by the way. Um, it is a happy ending story, but it could have been gone way wrong. So the story goes, someone did a backup and, well, they wanted to have their data back. And of course... They got it back because they had a proper backup service, but other people got the backup first. So they dragged down the files because why, you ask? Well, the backup was unencrypted. That wouldn't have happened if they had used Tarsnap. And Tarsnap is the exact same solution for a backup, but it's encrypted. So in case you want to have your backups, you do the backups, you get it back if you need it, but people don't get it as well, like from the crowd or from something else because it's encrypted. And how is it encrypted? Well, it's locally encrypted first because before it goes out into the web. And that's what Tarstep yes, is doing. That's that's the big distinction. Uh, you know, a lot of online services like Dropbox and so on are like, yes, we encrypt your content. And maybe they do on their server with one key. So your data and my data and Benedict's data are all encrypted with the same key that the people at Dropbox have. And so it might as well not be encrypted at that point. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Tarsnap, you can use a different key. You can use multiple keys if you want. Uh, and you make sure that the backups are encrypted with that key. And that happens on your computer with source code you have the access to on in a client you compiled. And then it goes off into the cloud, which means no one that doesn't have that key can read the data. And Tarsnap makes that easy for you. It has a nice command line utility, but people have also built um, a nice graphical user interface for it. But uh, if you know how to use Tar, then Tarsnap is a snap, really, because it just adds a couple more commands for the encryption parts and the 
sending and uh, encrypting. So that's all uh, built in. It has a nice documentation that uh, describes it all. Uh, Michael W. Lucas has also written a book about it called Tarsnet Mastery. So there is no reason to say, oh, it must be so complicated, I cannot understand it. No, it's really easy. Just put in $5 or so into your Tarsnap account and start your backups. And then you will always have secured backups and no one else can grab them from the web who doesn't have the keys. And that's what we want to have. You want to have a backup and you want to have no one else grabbing the backup while you have it somewhere stored until you need it. So check out tarsnap.com and uh, give them a nice shout out if you like the uh, application. So we get emails, of course, which is nice because that's the feedback and questions segment here. Uh, we like to get more uh, feedback, praise, questions, everything that you have uh, should go to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Uh, the first one that we have this week is Casey with an OpenBSD firewall question. Uh, short and simple, but nevertheless important. Uh, Casey asks, have you guys seen this? There's a uh, PFFW. Does any on GitHub? Does anyone know if it is good or not? Seems very interesting to me. It does look interesting. Uh, so PFFW is basically an OpenBSD PF-based firewall with a web interface. So PFFW provides a web user interface uh, for monitoring and configuring the firewall. And then separately, they also have A4 PFFW and W4 PFFW providing an Android and a Windows app for monitoring the firewall once it's running as well. So it's basically a modified installer uh, for OpenBSD 6.7 that sets it up as a firewall appliance. Apparently it's based on ComicWall, C-O-M-I-X wall. But yeah, it's uh, a web interface and provides you the ability to edit and configure your PF rules on a website and be able to monitor the stats and so on on the firewall from your phone or Windows computer. Oh. They also have instructions on how to build the image. So if you don't want to use their downloaded image uh, or want to use a different version of OpenBSD, you can basically uh, use the OpenBSD release process, but just adding in the OpenBSD PFFW files into the list of patches that should be built. Yeah, never heard about this. This could have been easily part of our um, uh, quick uh, Beastie Bits section. Yeah, all cool. I should maybe try it out in a little virtual machine and see what the GUI gives me. Yeah, there seem to be quite a few different components to it. There's also UTMFW, which is uh, the UTM firewall on, on OpenBSD, and PFFW, which is the PF firewall on OpenBSD. And then there's like the Android UI for, oh, PFFW and UTMFW. And then there's separately PFRE, which is the PF rule editor for OpenBSD, and a bunch of other bits. So it's interesting. Probably worth checking it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Casey, for this recommendation. Uh, the next is Daryl with a ZFS question. Ah, oh, we love those, don't we? Uh, Daryl writes, uh, first, I love the show. Thank you. I've been listening to it since day one. Oh, wow, that's a long time ago. Uh, glad you're still doing great after splitting from JB. Uh, that's not too bad. Uh, this show inspired me to run my own free NAS server so I can play around with and learn more about ZFS and BSD. Ah, good thinking. 
Currently, I'm in need of getting rid of the 24U rack that sits in my office. This is uh, for the obvious reasons of noise, space and heat. Ah, yes. <laughs> I live in Texas and my office sits at 86 degrees. Wow. Uh, Fahrenheit at its coolest when the rest of the house is 75 degrees Fahrenheit. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> That's quite a difference. Before I wasted too much of your time, the precursor to my question is, does Freenas support removal of top-level VDEVs? Can't find any mentions of it. Um, so it depends on the version. I don't, I, hmm, I don't know off the top of my head if 11.3 or 11.4, whatever the latest uh, Freenas is, actually supports that. I think it does. However, the limitation to the device removal in OpenZFS is that it only works on plain VDEF, so single devices that have no redundancy, or mirrors. It does not work on RAID Z, so you can't remove a whole RAID Z from a pool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would lose the whole pool. Yeah, so... Are you trying that out? <laughs> I'm not trying it, but I was trying to answer a question I just had, and their website moved the button on me. Yeah, uh, people don't li don't anyway. do this at home. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so the latest version is 11.3, and I, off the top of my head, do not know if that includes device removal or not, but I think it does. Uh, so if you have mirrors, you can uh, shrink the size of your pool if you really need to. Okay. Uh, because it's uh, basically having a couple of drives that could be used in different pools or in different fashion. Well, yeah. So it sounds like he's replacing his Dell R510, which uh, that's a couple of generations old and probably explains his heat and noise problems. But yeah, he's got 12 drives right now and he's switching to a tower. His plan is to sell the servers and the rack and I need a temporary FreeNAS server I can move to. Uh, to make it as easy as possible, I'd like to reduce my current pool to just a couple of mirrors so I can move the drives to the tower case and just import the pool and restore my config so I don't have to recreate all the users and shares. I have a pool that's currently called Tank1 with two mirrored VDEVs of three terabyte drives and a pool called Tank2 with four mirrors of three terabyte drives. Tank1 is uh, using only 750 gigabytes of space in Tank 2 it, um, is only using 2.3 gigabytes of space. I'd like to reduce both of those pools to just a single mirrored VDEV. This will leave me with only four drives that I can move to the tower and use this way until I build a new device that can hold more drives or replace the drives with higher capacity drive. I really appreciate all you uh, taught us about BSD and ZFS and so on. So depending what your thing Look, looking at what you have now, I'm guessing the one that's four mirrors that maybe you meant 2.3 terabytes because there's only 2.3 gigabytes of space in use on the pool. Copy the 2.3 gigabytes of space to the other pool and now you have an empty pool of four drives. Mm. So I'm going to assume that's a typo and actually meant 2.3 terabyte. Yeah. If you have four mirror VDEVs of three terabyte drives in the one, and that's eight drives, and then two in the other, and that's the other four to make 12 drives in total. Uh, and you want the new system to only have four drives. There are a couple ways to do that. One approach that might make sense here is to use the zpool split command, uh, which would take your current pool that's four mirrored uh, three terabyte drives and would basically make split it into two separate pools containing the same information. But then both would have no redundancy and that's probably not what you want. And it, it sounds like it's part of the problem is if you have 2.3 terabytes of data on the one pool and 750 gigabytes on the other, all of that won't fit on a pool of 
only four three terabyte drives in, in a RAID 10 type setup, because that'll be a bit too much space, won't it? No, actually, it'll be fine. So your best bet is probably just to replicate all the data to, to the two disk or uh, two mirror pool and just move, you know, export it and import it. I guess your problem is you wanted to keep the settings the same, the shares and so on. Probably, yeah. Mm. Yeah, um, since they're mirrors, if device removal will work, that can be done. That will give you a rel relatively large indirection table, but, you know, as a temporary solution, it's fine. Yeah, I don't know if the latest FreeNAS actually supports that. I thought it did, but I might be wrong. Uh, I think it's based on FreeBSD 11, which I don't think ever got that feature. I don't know if 11.4 got it or not. You know, your other option is to switch to vanilla FreeBSD, but that uh, doesn't help you here where you want to keep the uh, FreeNAS config and so on. So, I, does... This the command might not even that? be available then. Say again? The Zpool split. The, the split command might not even be available then, right? Oh, no, the split command is unrelated, sorry. Ah, okay. So the easiest way to tell is to do zpool get all on one of your pools. And uh, near the bottom, it'll have feature at, uh, and then a list of different features. So, you know, feature at LZ4 compress active, and feature at bookmarks enabled, etc. Uh, if it has the feature device underscore removal, then it means the version of ZFS you're running supports that feature. And so if you have device removal, then yes, you can do zpool remove and kick those extra mirrors out of your two pools and end up with two separate pools, each with one mirror VDEV that you can then put those four drives in another machine, import them, and it's basically just a shrunk down version of your, your big tower or server into the smaller tower. Yeah, uh, hopefully that helps. <laughs> yeah, um, thanks for that and for your feedback. And the uh, next is Raymond with a HP microserver, which is a reply to a previous question from a previous show. Um, uh, Raymond writes, Greetings, you recently had an email ask about the HP microserver generation 10. I just wanted to let you and the person know that they shouldn't have much trouble with the server unless uh, he tries to use the AMD version of PCI pass-through. I needed this in my situation when I turned it on via the virtualization option in the BIOS, the onboard controller for the hard drives required a driver, which only runs in Windows, or you would have to have RAID set up on the controller. I got around this by adding my own LSI controller in IT mode. Other than that, I would encourage the generation 10 with the X3421 processor, and it's the only one with four cores. Thanks for the podcast. Thanks for the tip. Yeah, see, we're connecting people. Uh, if we don't know the answer, then there's a big chance someone from our uh, growing number of listeners <laughs> um, will be the one who knows about this. Yep. And so that's why we have this part in the show. Uh, speaking of the show, uh, we pretty much are done for the day. And hopefully you like this. Send us again feedback to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we'll have further nice content in future episodes. Mm -hmm.